Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 11, as we find our way back to the Gospel of Matthew, this great series that we started all the way back in the first week of December of last year. And uh, here we are in October, uh, not quite halfway through uh, the book. Uh, but nevertheless, a, a really, really wonderful book. We've spent uh, quite a bit of time away from it. Look back at our records. It was July 14th, the last time we were in Matthew's Gospel together. So we'll spend a little bit of time uh, catching up as well as diving into the passage in front of us this morning. Matthew chapter 11 and verses 25 through chapter 12, verse 21. If you'd like to use one of the church Bibles, incidentally, you'll find Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew, and make your way to chapter 11, and you'll be able to follow along with us. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Fathers, we come to you again this morning as we do week in and week out. It's our prayer that you, by your Holy Spirit, would lift our eyes to Jesus, that you would help us to understand, that you would reveal yourself to us, and that we would be transformed into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it is safe to say that we live in a society in which busyness is a virtue and rest is a vice. Busyness is a virtue, and rest is a vice. This came home clearly to me through two different avenues this past week. The first instance was a friend approached me and asked the following question, Mike, how crazy busy are your Friday nights? How crazy busy are your Friday nights. Now, on the surface of it, that's an innocent enough question. But as I began to think about it, I realized that the question has subtly shifted from, are your Friday nights crazy busy? To just how crazy busy are your Friday nights? Now, I can remember when I was a kid, Friday nights were for pizza and video rentals and video stores. You remember those video stores? It was for TGIF and staying up late and sleeping in on Saturday morning. But now the assumption is how crazy busy are your Friday nights? The very next day, as I came into the office and looked at the news, an article was run in the Wall Street Journal on the 2nd of October that began in this way, the following two sentences. Americans now eat nearly half of their meals alone, and they love it. The growth of single-person households, and here we go, hectic family schedules have made solo dining the new normal. Even the Wall Street Journal understands that we live in a society in which busyness is a virtue and rest is a vice. You know it yourself. You've felt the assessment being placed upon you by those who would judge you not according to the content of your character, but by the schedule on your calendar. How busy are you? The good people are busy. The lazy, bad people are not. But what lies sort of underneath that and beyond that is the busyness that we experience not in our daily lives, in our embodied lives, but the busyness that you and I experience in our souls. Because at root, the pursuit of more in our schedules and our lives is really the pursuit to make a name for ourselves or our families. We've talked about it in our growth groups under the headings pretending and performing. We're tired. We're weary. We're heavy laden. And all throughout the Scriptures, all that God promises to His people is rest have it in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as God blesses the Sabbath day and makes it holy because on it, He rests 
from His work in creation. We have it in the promise of the promised land as God promises Israel rest in a land flowing with milk and honey. And we have it supremely in Jesus here in Matthew's chapter 11 and 12 as Matthew presents Jesus to you and me as the one in whom we find ultimate rest. Or if you like, Jesus' rest is better than the rest. That's the message of Matthew this morning. Now again, it's been since July 14th since we've been in Matthew's Gospel, so it'll do us some good just to remind ourselves of this book that we've been studying together. We've said the big message of the entire Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the King who rules with all authority over the kingdom of heaven, which is made up of disciples from all nations who obey all that he has commanded. You'll find that right in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. It says, though Matthew's message to us is the same message of Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia and that great is he safe quote, when he says to Lucy, he is the king, I tell you, of Aslan. Matthew here is meaning to tell us, Jesus is the king, I tell you. Look at him, believe in him, come to him here in this passage and find rest. Now, the entire gospel is sort of broken up into five sections. There are five great teaching blocks or sermons that Matthew preach, or, I'm sorry, Jesus preaches in the gospel of Matthew. Whatever you might think about Jesus, you cannot think of him as being less than a preacher. Jesus is a preacher, and all throughout this gospel we find him preaching. There's some verses that you might like to highlight or underline in your Bible because they give us the structure of this entire gospel. In chapter 7, in verses 28 and 29, Matthew says, when Jesus finished these sayings. That's right after the Sermon on the Mount. Then again, in chapter 11 and verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. That's the sermon we've entitled the Sermon on the Mission in chapter 10. As you continue to move forward in the gospel in chapter 13 and verse 53, here's a familiar phrase, when Jesus had finished these parables, chapter 13, the sermon on the mystery of the kingdom, we might call it. Then as we continue to move on in chapter 19 and verse 1, here you go, when Jesus had finished these sayings. This is a great sermon in Matthew 18 on discipleship and the church. And then finally, at the end of chapters 24 and 25, right there in 26 verse 1, here's our phrase, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. That is the sermon on the coming judgment when the kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness. So there are five sermons throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and each one of these sermons is attached to a narrative section that highlights a key word that we find in the sermon. So for instance, the key word of the Sermon on the Mount is authority. And right after Jesus preaches that sermon, there are a series of healings that show Jesus' authority. In Matthew chapter 10, the key word is opposition, as Jesus explains that he will be opposed and his disciples will be opposed. In chapter 13 and onward, the key word is division, as Jesus explains that when the gospel comes, it necessarily divides people into believing and unbelieving camps. In Matthew 18, we've already said it, the key word is discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? 
And then in 24 and 25, the key word is judgment as Jesus talks about his final return in glory when he will come to judge. So here we are in Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapters 11 and 12, right in the midst of opposition. Jesus has described the opposition that he and his disciples will face, and now he begins to experience it in real time as it plays out before his disciples and before us. Now, the structure of the passage that we're looking at this morning is fairly simple. In 11, 25 to 30, we're told that Jesus is the rest giver. He's the rest giver. Jesus is the one in whom we find rest. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 21, Matthew recounts two um, fights or battles between Jesus and the Pharisees over the issue of the Sabbath. This is the only place in Matthew's gospel where Sabbath dispute comes front and center. And it comes right on the heels of Jesus referring to himself as the rest giver. In chapters tw- chapter 12, 1 through 8, we see that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And in chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, that he is the merciful and just servant. But again, Jesus is the one in whom we find rest. Firstly, Jesus is the rest giver. Verse 25 of chapter 11. At that time, Matthew writes, Jesus declared. Now, pause for a moment. Let us just keep in mind that what is happening at this stage of the gospel is that Jesus is being opposed. And at the beginning of chapter 11, he explains that the people of his generation rejected John the Baptist for being too rigid, and now they've rejected Jesus for being, in their estimation, too loose. And he concludes in verses 20 through 24 by pronouncing woes on the cities in which the majority of his miracles had been performed because they remained in unbelief. Now, if I were to suggest to you that Jesus was going to come on the scene in Newcastle in the next couple of days and begin to raise the dead, heal the sick, and cast out demons, you might be forgiven for thinking that that would make our task as First Baptist Church far simpler. Or would it? Because according to Jesus, it's the places in which he most clearly manifested his power and authority and glory that remain in unbelief. And the question is, why? Why is it that people can see firsthand the miraculous works of Jesus and yet refuse to believe? And in this passage, as Jesus describes himself as the rest giver, he tells us very plainly that the prerogative to Believe in Jesus. The prerogative of revealing who Jesus is is not man's or woman's. It is God's. Look at what Jesus says. He declares in the hearing of all, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The prerogative for revealing the truth and the glory and the beauty of the gospel is God's. Here Jesus describes very plainly that God has chosen in His good pleasure to hide the truth of the gospel from the wise and the understanding, but rather to reveal the gospel to little children. 
There is no intellectual path to God. It doesn't matter how wise, how intelligent, how clever you might think that you are this morning. It accounts for nothing before the Lord. Now, this is not to say that there are not intelligent people in the kingdom of heaven. We praise God that there are. But what it is to say is that in order to come to truly understand who Jesus is, you and I must become as little children. Trusting, teachable, humble. Yesterday I was in the drive through line at Chick-fil-A and the car right in front of me had a bumper sticker which just simply read, religion, because thinking is hard. And I thought about that, that sticker for a moment and I thought, you know, that's a real gotcha slogan. Religion, because thinking is hard. The implication, of course, is that I'm more clever than you are, I'm smarter than you are, I would never fall for a wives' tale like you have. You must be foolish or stupid. You must be unable to think. And I thought for a moment, and I thought, exactly, you're exactly right. You know what, the shame of the whole thing is that you are right. You are far too bright, far too clever, ever to humble yourself before King Jesus. That's the shame of the entire thing. If you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, perhaps it is your great learning that prevents you from doing so. My subtle challenge to you is, have you ever evaluated the claims of Christ? Have you ever actually looked at the glory of Jesus revealed in the gospel? Have you ever been confronted with God in Christ reconciling the world to himself? There is no reasonable path to that conclusion. You cannot reason your way to faith in Christ. You must see his glory revealed, and it is all God's prerogative. Notice that Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I pray even this morning you might have Christ revealed to you in power and in glory and in authority through the Word of God. But notice what Jesus says then in verse 28 after he makes this declaration. He issues a wide, sweeping invitation. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what is it? Does Jesus choose or do we come? Which one is it? My question to you is why does it have to be one? No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's what the Bible says. Next line, come to me. Don't get tangled up in theological knots. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's what's at stake. Rest. Rest for your souls, as Jesus describes it in verse 29. The freedom, the contentment, the peace that is known only by a man or a woman who no longer is seeking to establish their own righteousness and acceptance with God and others. The greatest burden of our souls is the burden that you and I experience when we are trying to prove to others that we really do belong here. There is no greater burden for our souls than the burden of trying to prove to God that if there are good people, certainly I'm one of them. To hope that if God is grading on a curve, that I'll be the kind of person that He accepts. 
There's no greater burden than that. Some of us have lived our entire supposed Christian lives on a rat race, a treadmill, trying to be good enough and establish our own righteousness. But Jesus here is the one who offers us ultimate rest. Come to me, tempest-tossed, burdened, heavy-laden. I will give you rest. Look at what he says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Now that is a stunner. Because a yoke is an instrument for work. A yoke is a piece of wood that would go across someone's shoulders and it would cause burdens to be easier to carry as the weight is distributed evenly across the back. Come to me and I will give you rest along with a yoke and learn from me along with teaching. So what it means to be a Christian is not that Jesus somehow or another sanitizes our spiritual laziness or lawlessness. The rest that Jesus offers isn't a rest entirely and absolutely from any sort of spiritual life or duty. But rather, it is the rest that comes from understanding I am forgiven of my sins, and now I take the yoke of Jesus upon me, not in order to achieve my acceptance, but to live out my acceptance. That's what it means to come to Jesus for rest. There is work to be done for Jesus. There are disciples to be made. There is sin to be killed. There is teaching to take and learn and obey. But Jesus is clear. For the disciple of Jesus, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, probably the greatest illustration of the Christian life outside of the Bible comes from Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress. And as Bunyan describes the life of the Christian in the life of a man named Christian in his book. He describes Christian as a man with a burden upon his back. Towards the end of his story, Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks." Here's a picture of a person who has come to the Lord Jesus Christ to be freed from the burden of self-righteousness, not in order to chuck the whole spiritual endeavor altogether, but now with the power of Christ and the Spirit of God out of thanksgiving for a burden released to gladly take the yoke of Jesus upon Him. Come to me. Why will you be weary? 
Why will you continue to try to prove yourself by your own supposedly righteous deeds when Christ offers you true and lasting eternal rest and joy and fellowship? Jesus is the rest giver, and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. On Thursday, a group of us on staff here were just observing that Matthew, after he describes Jesus as the rest giver, goes on to give these two accounts of Sabbath disputes with the Pharisees, and certainly there's something there. The Sabbath is meant to provide rest. The commandments of God, a gracious commandment. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And here in chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, immediately on the heels of all that Jesus has just said, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. One of the commentaries describes this as though Jesus and his disciples are trying to make it to the first service at synagogue in the morning. And so in a hurry, they stop off at the fields and they begin to pluck grain to have breakfast on their way. The issue isn't what they're doing. The issue is when they're doing it. Because the drama ensues in verse 2 when the Pharisees see what they're doing and we read, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. God always intended the Sabbath day to be a day of rest for his people. As Jewish tradition continued on, the Mishnah, which is a group of laws added to the laws of God found in the Old Testament, sought to categorize work and define work in 39 different areas. And within each of those 39 different areas, there were subcategories of work that was also forbidden. Some of the things that were forbidden were walking a certain amount of steps. Once you cross the threshold, you're now working. Writing a certain amount of letters. Of course, you can't write too much on the Sabbath. That would constitute work. Apparently here, preparing a meal out of bounds in the minds of the Pharisees. The point that we are to understand here is that absent an understanding of the freedom and rest that we have in Jesus, we will always seek to find that rest in our legalism. And the problem with doing that is you will never know when you've done enough. Am I resting right? Have I rested enough? Did I work? I don't know if I worked. Does that constitute as work? And because we're so uncomfortable with grace, we will fill in the vacuum with our own man-made rules, which is exactly what is happening here. And so Jesus, in a master stroke, combats their dispute in three different references to the Old Testament. Firstly, verse 3, have you not read, which is an offensive thing to say to the religious scholars of the day. Have you not read the Bible? Are you familiar with this book? Have you seen this? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him, strictly speaking, to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. This is 1 Samuel 21. David is the anointed king. Saul is still the actual king. 
David and his disciples go into the temple, and they're greeted by a priest named Ahimelech. David asks for food. Do you have anything to eat? Even five loaves of bread would be great. Ahimelech says, no, all that we have is the bread of the presence, which 12 loaves of bread put out to represent the 12 tribes of Israel on the table on the Sabbath. It was only for the priests to eat. David has the audacity as the anointed king to say, give me some of that bread. And what's so fascinating about 1 Samuel 21 is that there's no ethical dispute or debate. Ahimelech just feeds him. And so Jesus is saying very simply and very plainly, if David could eat the bread that only the priests could eat on the Sabbath, why then can I and my disciples, why cannot we eat from these grains as we've picked them on the Sabbath? The implication is clear. Jesus is saying, I am greater than David. I am greater than David. Secondly, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? See, things aren't quite as black and white as we always would like them to be. Another day, a friend of mine said to me, what are you going to do today? It was a Saturday. I said, I think I'm going to rest. To which he replied, Sundays are the day of rest. Another friend who knows what I do for a living chimed in, not for him. And she was right. On Saturdays, on the Sabbath here in Old Testament Israel, the priests still had to work. If not, there'd be no temple service. Jesus continues by saying, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than all of it. Thirdly, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Simply stated, legalism always exalts love of commandments above love of people. Jesus said, if you really loved people, if you really understood the law that, you, that you, you're so adamant about keeping, you would have been merciful and not condemned the guiltless. I am greater, no matter how you cut it. And therefore, I get to interpret the law. The law is not abolished in Christ. It may be reinterpreted in Christ. Look at the kicker, uh, the, the, real, the real punchline of what Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 8. The Son of Man, here is the ultimate argument. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, this is Daniel chapter 7. As Daniel looks and sees the Son of Man approach the Ancient of Days, and he's given authority and a kingdom. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Some of us, I'm afraid, want Jesus to be our life coach. He's no one's life coach. He's Lord. He's given a kingdom and dominion and dynasty and glory. He's to be obeyed and worshipped. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In effect, to say to these men, who are you to lecture me on Sabbath observance? That's the absurdity of trying to explain the literary beauty and intricacies of Hamlet to Shakespeare. That's like trying to do an exposition of the Constitution for Thomas Jefferson. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the law giver, the law interpreter. And he's telling them, he's telling us, you will not find your ultimate rest in your law keeping. You will find it only in me. The Sabbath points to me. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. But then thirdly, 
And finally, Jesus is the just, or the merciful and just servant. The Pharisees, it seems, are adamant about not understanding Jesus and what He has come to do. Because even after Jesus has corrected them about their misplaced trust in legal observance, we read in verse 9 that He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked Him, is it lawful? Is it allowable to heal on the Sabbath? There are a lot of really commendable things that men and women have chosen not to do because of their conviction about the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. One of my heroes in history is the flying Scotsman, Eric Little. 1924, he's a 100-meter runner, would have won the gold almost without question. The race was on a Sunday, he wouldn't run. So all Little did was go and train for the 400 instead, and he won gold in that commendable, heroic stance for conviction by little. But could you imagine if, in light of some sort of misplaced understanding of the Sabbath, all the hospitals, all the doctor's offices, every urgent care just shut down? The absurdity of that sort of notion shouldn't be lost on anyone. And yet, notice the the way that the Pharisees asked the question— Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Because, of course, in their thinking, it is absolutely unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. You cannot even dare to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And yet here is this man, this poor man, who finds his way into the synagogue on Saturday. Surely he must have thought, Surely, if I'm going to experience mercy, if I'm going to be met with grace, if I'm going to find rest anywhere today, it will be there. Surely, if I'm going to be accepted, surely, if I'm going to understand the Lord's presence, it will be there on this day in that place, I will go to the synagogue. And the moment he enters, he finds not one person who will raise their healthy fingers to heal his withered. Rather, he finds judgment, he finds ostracism, he finds people forbidding the only one who might help him from helping him. Legalism always squashes love of mercy. Jesus will have none of it. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Because, of course, the Mishnah allowed for that. How ridiculous. If your sheep falls into a pit, you may pull it out, but do not heal. Jesus simply says, how much more is a man worth than a sheep? We have 20-something people taking our membership class this month. I have the joy and the privilege of teaching the section on our statement of faith And as I've revisited our statement, it was encouraging to see that in our statement on humanity, we say each human life has value and dignity unique among all creation. Jesus would affirm that. There's something special and unique about a man or a woman made in the image of God. So it is lawful to do good, to heal 
on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored. You see, the real puzzle, the real mystery, the real question that you and I are meant to ask as we encounter Jesus as the rest giver, as the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, and now the one who is the merciful and just King, is how will this Jesus bring rest? How does He achieve the rest that you and I long for? How does He achieve this freedom from establishing our own righteousness? What will He do? And here in verse 14 of chapter 12, we're told the Pharisees go out immediately after this healing and they begin to conspire, it's a deep state conspiracy against Him to destroy Him. We can't have Him talking about rest. We can't have Him profaning the Sabbath. We can't have Him taking our power. Let's destroy Him. Friends, you understand this is the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God and His sovereignty. The very thing the human beings meant to silence and destroy Jesus to stop Him from providing this rest for His people is the very thing that Jesus does to provide rest for His people. Because it's through the cross. You see, we're right back with Christian from Pilgrim's Progress. He has given me rest through His sorrow. It is as Jesus dies on the cross for sinners, as He absorbs the condemnation for sin that you and I deserve, that we're freed from having to establish our own righteousness because we get Christ's. Jesus, aware of this, verse 15, withdraws from there. Many followed Him and He healed them all. Order them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Here's a quote from Isaiah 42. He brings the theme of rest and weariness full circle. As Isaiah the prophet looks into the future and he sees the coming Messiah, the Lord gives him these words, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's fascinating that Jesus didn't seek to market himself more. In fulfillment of this prophecy, he was quiet and meek. He did not quarrel or cry aloud. And here in verse 20, we have this absolutely breathtaking and beautiful statement. It's almost too good to be true. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you know what a bruised reed is? It's like a small piece of grass bent over, bruised, broken under the weight of a drop of water. Do you know what a smoldering wick is? It's as though you watch a candle as it burns down to its final breath. And you think to yourself, don't you, I, I, better, I better put that out before it starts to stink. Nothing worse than a smoldering wick. The bruised reed and the smoldering wick are pictures of the soul that is absolutely 
burdened, worn out, expired from the heavy burden of trying to please the Lord on its own. A number of year, years ago, Kelly and I were at a, a conference, and it had been a somewhat discouraging, dark spiritual season for me. And I had the privilege, the, the joy, really, it was an amazing experience to sit with a pastor by the name of Mark Dever. And I explained to him in, in that context just how troubled I was. And he, he encouraged me to read a book called The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. Dever pointed out to me that when Isaiah describes Jesus as the one who will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick, that he actually means more than he says. That not only will Jesus not break the bruised reed, but that he will nurture it and tend it back to health. Not only will he not quench the smoldering wick, but he will fan it back into flame. That he will give rest. So why are you running? Why are you trying to prove to yourself, to others, to God that you really belong? Why are you seeking through legal observance to cause God to be well-pleased with you? When in the person of His servant, verse 18, with whom His soul is well-pleased, God offers you rest. Why will you hold on to your sins when Jesus means to free you from them? Why will you this very morning Remain under the condemnation, the just and right and good condemnation of God. When Jesus will drink the full cup of God's wrath on your behalf. When will you obey Christ? Come. Come to me. You know you're tired because I know I am. Come to me. Jesus is the one in whom we find rest. Father, I pray this morning for each and every one of us here that we would find rest in Christ. Lord, when our souls toil and labor, through our own law-keeping, to be good enough, we find ourselves worn out by the burden. And yet, at the very end of our ropes, we find Jesus saying, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light free you from your sins and place my spirit within you so that it's actually a delight and a joy to be my disciple 
find Jesus tending that bruised reed back to health and fanning back into flame that smoldering wick. The merciful and just servant. Lord, for those of us who don't know you this morning, we pray that you might draw us to yourself. You might choose to reveal yourself to us. For those of us who know you, help us to rest content and assured of our forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.